0: Alrighty, John 17, we finally made it through the upper room discourse to John 17, which, as you are probably aware, is this prayer of Christ. Um, it brings the upper room discourse to a close. And, and we were there last week, we concluded chapter 16 with Jesus' pronouncement that he has conquered the world. And then we come to this to this prayer. and it's an incredibly rich And dense portion of scripture, Um, so much here, it's the longest recorded prayer of Christ in the entire Bible. Um, This this prayer here, it's often referred to as the high priestly prayer. Um, And as we'll see as we work through it, there's a reason for that. It's never called the high priestly prayer in this passage, but Christ certainly is performing a priestly function. He's praying for his people. But it might be better just to simply call this prayer Christ's closing prayer or his concluding prayer. With this prayer he wraps up his teaching from the, from the upper room. So if we would, look at chapter 17 verse verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, or if you have a NASB, it's, it has it literally, then these things Jesus spoke. These things Jesus spoke. It brings the entire portion of the upper room to a close. It points back to all the teaching that he's just said in the upper room. And so it links this prayer, chapter 17, back to his teaching. And in this prayer, Christ is going to repeat many of the same themes that he's taught them through chapters 13 through 16. So if you look at the back of your outline, I I gave you um, sort of a synopsis of all the parallels between chapter 17 and everything he's taught them in chapters 13 through through 16. In other words, Christ's prayer here in chapter 17 is meant to secure all that he has promised his disciples in chapters 13 through 16. Christ's cross is just hours away. And in this prayer, he will express his complete dependence on the Father to accept his cross work and to guarantee the salvation of all of his own. Christ in his prayer surveys his entire earthly ministry and declares to the Father that he's accomplished everything the Father gave him to do. And in this prayer, Christ asks the Father to keep his disciples in this life as they're left in this hostile world and to bring them all the way to behold his heavenly glory in the end. So there's a ton packed into this, to these 26 verses It unfolds pretty clearly in two sections. Verses 1 through 5 would be Christ's prayer for himself. And then verses 6 through 26 is Christ's prayer for his disciples. So it unfolds in these two pretty distinct sections. This morning, we're going to be looking at the first section. Verses 1 through 5, Christ's prayer for himself. And in these verses, Christ will make two petitions for himself in light of the arrival of his hour. So let's read it as we get going. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is a packed five verses of, of glory Look again at verse 1. Jesus begins by saying, Father, he lifts his eyes to heaven, uh, a sign of reverence, of honor, of dependence on the Father. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Christ's appointed hour is the time in which the events of his arrest, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension all take place. So the hour encompasses all of those events. Okay? And we've been told throughout the Gospel of John that this hour has not yet come. So back in chapter 2, verse 4, it's already been anticipated. My hour has not yet come. And throughout John, we're told that they couldn't lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. So anticipation of this hour has been building throughout the Gospel of John. And we're repeatedly pointed forward to the events of the cross through the gospel of of John. So all the way back to John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3.14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. So this is what everything in Christ's ministry has been building up to, this hour. But that's not all. This hour has not only been anticipated throughout Christ's earthly ministry. It has been anticipated Throughout the unfolding of redemptive history, from the very beginning, this hour has been anticipated. It's been prepared for. Everything's been leading up to this hour. And if that were not enough, what we're going to see this morning is that this hour has been anticipated from all eternity. All eternity has been building up to this hour. What Christ would accomplish in this hour has been God's plan from eternity past. It is amazing. Everything has been building up to this hour. This hour would be the hinge, the turning point upon which all of salvation history, all of God's plans of redemption would turn and would be decisively accomplished. And Jesus declares here to the Father that it has arrived. Everything he will pray in this prayer will be in light of this hour, because of this hour, for the sake of this hour. So what will ultimately take place in this hour? What does Christ request take place in this hour? What will be so significant about this hour? Well, that's what we are told, what we're told next. We first get Christ's petition and in verses 1 through 3, Christ asks for the glorification of the Father through Christ's glory in this appointed hour. Verse 1, in verse 1, Jesus requests his mutual glorification with the Father. So look at verse 1 again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Now, there's a lot packed into that verse, so we're going to unpack it. With the cross so imminent, Jesus now asks the Father to glorify the Son in this hour. So this is Christ's request, is the glorification of the Son. Glorify your Son. But what does that mean? How would the Son be glorified in this hour, how would the hour be for the glorification of the Son? Well, I think it means at least at least two things. Remember back in chapter 12, verse 23, what, what Jesus said. He answered them and said, the hour, same hour, has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, what will happen at that hour? Look what he says in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. This verse looks forward primarily to Christ's cross. It would be the hour of the moment of his greatest suffering. The moment when he would endure the greatest horrors of divine wrath against sin. And in this hour, Jesus said he would be glorified. You see that? He would be glorified in that hour, on the cross. Primarily through the sufferings on the cross. So, first thing we can say is going to happen in the glorification of the Son. It's What is that? It's the display of Christ's visible splendor on the cross. And I think that's the nuance of glory here. Glorify means his visible splendor, his grandeur put on full display. In other words, the visible splendor and grandeur of Christ would be put on the greatest display on the brutal, shameful, humiliating cross. His glory, his visible splendor would be put on preeminent display on the cross. Now that is an astonishing thing to say, especially to John's readers, to the Roman world. The Roman cross was the symbol of torture and shame and violence and cruelty and evil. It was the sign of defeat. The lowest of the low was crucified. It was condemnation. It was the worst fate that could befall a human being. But Jesus says it means his glory. Well, how so? Well, I think we get a clue. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 14. We're told the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. What is this glory consisted of? John says, Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 17, he, he takes us back to Sinai. He says, the law was given to, through Moses, and grace and truth, same two words, were given through Jesus Christ. And those two words, grace and truth, catapult us back to Exodus 34, where the Lord comes and passes before Moses and reveals his glory and declares the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The same two words in Greek. In other words, God's glory is the display of his person, which at heart is this. Those two words, steadfast love and faithfulness, is the words John uses, grace and truth. In other words, through Jesus Christ and preeminently through the cross, this glory, this glory of God, has been put on display in a way even greater than at Sinai. The glory of Christ is the visible display of the splendor of God's redeeming love his steadfast love and faithfulness for sinners, which would go even to the point of a cross. That's his glory. That's how he's glorified in this hour. His visible splendor is put on display. But that isn't all. The glorification of the Son will also be the exaltation of Christ in triumphant glory in this hour. John 13, we Jesus says something similar. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Looking to his ascension, his glorification in in heaven. His hour will mean his glorification because in it he will conquer what we saw last week. He will succeed as the victorious Messiah, returning to the Father, having accomplished all of his plans of redemption. So that's the second thing his glorification means. It will be his return to glory in the Father's presence. Look at verse 5. We'll come back there in a a minute. But it's exactly what he says in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So when Christ is asking, Father, glorify your son, he's praying for for these two things. What I want to point out here, what we must not miss, is that what Christ was before declaring, he is now praying. He is asking these things from the Father. What Jesus declared as a matter of fact, earlier in the gospel, he is now requesting for it to happen. So you can see how 1331 compares with 17, verse 1. What he declared to be the case there, he now prays and asks the Father to be the case. So, this prayer in verse 1 is essentially a request that the cross would take place. It's an expression of Christ's willingness to endure the cross. Because the hour has arrived, Christ now prays and asks the Father that the cross would indeed result in his glorification. He's asking the Father to accept his work that he's about to do. He's asking the Father would return him to glory, because as the Father returns the Son to glory, it would be the stamp of the Father's approval that the Son accomplished everything. The Father accepted his work. He raises him to glory, demonstrates the Son has accomplished all of redemption, But if that does not happen, then Christ's mission failed and the father's mission will have failed and the father would not be glorified. And that is exactly what Jesus prays next. Look at the end of verse one. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. This is Christ's purpose, the glorification of the father through the son. Christ's prayer that the Father would glorify him through the cross is not a prayer that is in competition with the Father's glory. This is not Christ's vainglory. It's unto the ultimate goal of the Father's glory. In other words, the ultimate purpose of Christ's prayer here is the Father's glory. And the way that would be achieved most fully is as Christ is glorified in the cross and return to glory with the Father. So, Question, how does that happen? How does Christ's glory result in the glory of the Father, the glorification of the Father? And I think two ways as well. Number one, because the visible splendor of the Father is being put on display. The Father has revealed himself most fully in the Son. And the Father is revealed in his glory to the greatest degree as the Son is revealed in His glory to the greatest degree. The glory of the Father shines in the face of Christ. It's shone in the face of Christ throughout eternity. And at the cross, it would be put on maximum exposure. As we behold the glory of Christ, we are beholding the very glory and splendor of the Father. Isn't that what Jesus said in chapter 14, verse 9? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. So that's how the Father would be glorified. As Christ is revealed in all of his glory, so the Father would be through him. It's another way. Number two, the Father's plans and purposes are being accomplished. That's how the Father would be glorified, through Christ's glory. As Christ is glorified in heaven, it will signal that his sacrifice was accepted. The Father's plans of redemption accomplished. Christ is here asking the Father to accept his cross. Because as that happens, the Father's plans will be accomplished. And that will redound to the Father's glory. So this prayer in chapter 17, verse 1 that the Father would glorify the Son is not a prayer that is in competition with the Father's glory or plan. It's in perfect alignment with the Father's plan. It has the ultimate goal, the glory and praise of, of the Father. And let me just stick a little parenthesis in here. That Through this, we, we get a glimpse into the eternal nature of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son. The Father has throughout eternity been pursuing and enjoying the display of his own glory in the image of his Son. And the Son has throughout eternity been seeking the glory of the Father as he has been the perfect display and reflection and image of the Father. And that pursuit reached its climax at the cross. In other words, that is the fountainhead Of the gospel. That is why we have the gospel. The gospel is mainly about the glory of God. The gospel is mainly about the Father and the Son pursuing one another's glory. We are just undeserving beneficiaries that get caught up into God's pursuit for his glory. And it overflows upon us unworthy sinners. If that was not the case, we would not have any hope. In the gospel, any reason that God should love and do for us this amazing work at heart, it is God's pursuit of his glory. That's what Jesus tells us here. So this prayer is Christ's complete dependence on the father to the very end. His request is that the father would now do the very thing that the father sent Christ to do. But that brings us now to verse 2. So in verse 1, he asked the Father to glorify himself by accepting his work and returning him to glory. And now in verse 2, Jesus bases his request on the analogy of the Father's eternal decrees and purposes. Look at verse 2. It says, since or as you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to all whom you've given to Him. So, verse two begins with this word, just as. So, if you have a NASB or a KJV, it's just as. Some of your translations, ESV, NIV, have since or for. I think the word just as is the best translation here. Jesus is giving an analogy, a comparison between what He has just prayed. And then something else. He, this is the, the basis of his request. He's basing his request on a comparison on something that took place in eternity past. So look at the, uh, the diagram here, how this really lines up. Verse 1, glorify your son, so that the son may glorify you just as you gave him authority over all flesh so that he might give eternal life to all you have given to him. So what does that mean? Let's let's flesh that out a bit. Jesus first speaks of the father's gift, the universal authority of the son. So verse two, just as you've given him authority over all flesh. So this aligns with the first half of verse one, glorify your son just as you've given him authority over all flesh. Jesus says the Father gave the Son authority over all flesh. That's the first of many things we're going to find in chapter 17 that the Father gave the Son. We keep reading. The Father gave the Son this. The Father gave the Son that. This is the first of, of many of those. He gave the Son authority over all flesh. The idea is universal authority over humanity. He is God's appointed representative, his Messiah who would mediate God's rule over the universe. That's what God gave the Son. And Christ received that authority and entered that authority as the victorious Messiah through his cross and resurrection. So what did Jesus say at the Great Commission? Matthew twenty-eight eighteen? You remember? All authority has been given to me on earth and in heaven. So following the events of his cross and resurrection, Christ is exalted as the messianic king, possessing all authority. But verse 2 says that the father gave this authority to the son, presumably in eternity past. So it seems like what he's saying here is that the father gave this authority to the son in eternity past, which would be his through his cross work. And if that's the case, then it makes perfect sense how this aligns with the first request in verse 1. Father, glorify your son. Jesus asks the Father to glorify the son through the cross, just as God granted him all authority in eternity past, which would be his through the cross. Jesus is saying, just as you gave me all authority, which would be mine through the cross, now I'm asking you, glorify me in my exaltation as I endure the cross. You see? So that's the Father's gift. But look at the rest of verse 2. The Father's purpose is the Son's securing eternal life for all of God's elect. You've given Him authority over all flesh, which would be His through the cross, to give eternal life, so that He might give eternal life to all you've given to Him. So, this is the second thing now that the Father's given to the Son. What is it? You see, it is a people. It says, all whom you have given to him. So he's given authority and he's given a people. The Father gave a specific, defined people to the Son for the Son to come and give eternal life to. Do you see that in the text? Now we've already learned about this group in John. Over and over again. John 6, all the Father gives to me. The Father gives a certain people to the Son. All that he has given to me. Verse 39. John 10, my Father who has given them to me. What does Jesus do? I give them eternal life. We're going to hear about this group of people all through chapter 17. Well, who are they? They are those the father freely chose and determined in his own free grace and purpose to save. They are the new covenant people of God. They are you and me. They are those the father determined to redeem. And he gives them to the son for the son to ensure their eternal life. Do you see that? So, the Father's giving authority to the Son has something to do with this people that He's also given to the Son. All right? So, what's the connection? He's given these two things to the Son. What's the connection? Why did the Father give the authority to the Son? Look at the verse. So that all you've given to Him, He might give them eternal life. The primary purpose. And goal of the gift of authority is the giving of eternal life to God's elect. The Father gave the Son authority over all humanity in eternity past for the goal that the Son would give eternal life through His obedience on the cross to all God's own. This verse gives us one of the clearest views into God's eternal plan of redemption With his son. Call it a covenant. Call it whatever you want it. This verse tells us that in eternity past. God had a plan with his son. God gave a people to his son. That the son. Would through his cross have authority to give. Every one of them. Eternal life. Unto the glory and praise of God the father. Through Jesus Christ. The eternal plan of redemption. And in the mind of God. The son would give eternal life to all those the father has given to him as he possesses all authority as the crucified and risen Messiah. Just notice how comprehensive this is. It says all. All you have given to him. Christ came into this world to receive authority, to give eternal life through his cross. And in that way, he would ensure that he would give eternal life to each And every single one of those given to him by the father, no dropouts. That's what his cross accomplished. His cross accomplished something. It secured something. You see, the father did not give every single person to the son. He gave us specific people. That is what this verse tells us. You cannot get around it. And Christ came in order to give and accomplish everything that was necessary for their salvation. To guarantee, to secure, to make certain that not a single one would be lost, but eternally saved. So how does this second half compare with and provide the foundation for the the first half? So that the son might glorify you just as it was your purpose, eternal purpose, that through my glorification, through my cross, I would secure the eternal life of all your own. In other words, I think Christ is saying that he seeks the Father's glory as he accomplishes redemption and saves all those the Father gave him to save. So in verse 2, he's essentially saying, Father, just as you've ordained to give me authority through my cross. In order to give eternal life to all your own, now therefore, Father, accept the work I'm about to do and glorify me through my exaltation, said so as a result, your eternal purposes, primarily your elect, would be saved and your plans accomplished. D.A. Carson summarized it like this, he said, Father, you know that in principle you've <laughs> given me a supreme position over all people a position I am to receive as a function of my obedience unto death. You know that this position of authority was assigned to me in order that I may give eternal life to all those you've given to me. Now, Father, the time of these great events is here. My prayer, therefore, is that you would fulfill your word, glorify your Son, just as you promised you would, in order that by bringing glory to you, he might affect the salvation of those you've given to him. So that's rich, my friends. That's packed. But if that wasn't rich enough, the question lingers what's eternal life? He's going to give eternal life to all these. What's the essence of eternal life which defines the new covenant people of God, which you have been given? Throughout John, we've read of eternal life. It's the life of the age to come, the new creation, the kingdom, breaking into this present time now to be experienced. It's not merely never-ending life, although that's part of it. It's a kind of life. It's a quality of life. But what is that? Well, that's what Jesus answers in verse 3. He gives us the identity of eternal life. And this is eternal life. This is what Jesus has come to secure. That they know you, the only true God, In Jesus Christ, whom you sent. What is eternal life? What have you been given? It is knowing God. Through his cross, Christ accomplished redemption and eternal life for every single one of those given to him by the Father. And at the heart of that redemption is not your forgiveness of sins. It's not any of the other benefits that we gain from his work. All of those are means to another end. At the heart of his redemption, the gift of eternal life to you, is that you would know God in Christ. That's the greatest gift of redemption. That's why we've been saved. That's what God purposed with his son from eternity past. That the son would save a people that they might be brought into the essence of true life and the enjoyment of God. The son's pursuit has been that he might secure a people to enjoy the father just as he's enjoyed the father from all eternity. And the father's plan was that he would save a people that would enjoy the son just as he's enjoyed the son from all eternity. That they would be brought to know and behold the glory of God. That a people would be saved to share in God's own enjoyment of being God. That's what Christ has come to secure for you. That's what you've been given now. And this relationship is experienced through Christ alone. It says they may know you, the eternal God, the true God, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is not only a knowledge of of God and Christ, but it's a knowledge of God through Christ. It's the only way you can know Father. And now we can really see how it all comes together, right? You see, Christ's glorification and the Father's glorification in the cross, verse one, is the way eternal life is secured for each and every one of us. But it's not merely a stepping stone to our eternal life. Like he did this and it secured eternal life. Oh, that's true. But the very display of and our knowledge of the glory of God in Christ as it's displayed in verse 1 is the very essence of eternal life. How do you experience eternal life now? But by beholding the very glory of God on display in Christ. That is eternal life. It's knowing God. Truly enjoying Him, worshiping Him, beholding His glory. And that's already begun to be enjoyed now. Because of Christ's cross, we behold the very glory of God a maximal display. So are you experiencing eternal life? Is that what defines your relationship with God? Is the gospel just about forgiveness of sins getting you... Out of that? Or is it unto the experience of eternal life, knowing God, knowing Christ? Eternity will only involve a deeper, clearer, more radiant, more intense display of the same glory of God in Christ. For eternity, we will know more and more fully the glory of God, full of grace and truth, <laughs> as we know the Son and all He accomplished more and, and more. That is the essence of Eternal life. So that's Christ's first request, his first petition. We're almost done. Look at his second petition quickly in verses 4 to 5. Christ asks for the glorification of Christ to his pre-incarnate glory in response to his perfect glorification of the Father while on earth. So this verse really just amplifies everything we've just seen, but it focuses in on, the, on Christ's glory itself. Verse 4 gives us the God-glorifying name of Christ's ministry and cross. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So how did he glorify the Father? By doing everything the Father gave him to do, including everything in his earthly ministry all the way up to... The cross, that's how he brought glory to the Father. And as a result, we get verse 5, the glorification of Christ in heaven with the Father as the victorious Messiah. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Because Christ has accomplished all the Father's ordained work, therefore he asks him to glorify him as the stamp of approval on his work. just want to point out what a statement this is here. Christ claims to have experienced and enjoyed glory in the Father's presence, to have shared in the same glory as the Father had from eternity. He points us back to Christ's existence before his incarnation, before the world, eternity past. Back then, he participated in and shared in the visible splendor and glory of God himself. Now, that's an amazing thing to say. Only God could say such a thing. Because Isaiah 20, 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. My glory I give to no other. Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake I do it. My name should not be profaned. My glory I will not give to another. It screams Christ's deity, equality with the Father what he shared with the father before his incarnation. And Jesus left that glory. The father gave him work to do. The father gave him a people to redeem. The father gave him authority, which would be his through his cross, which would secure and guarantee the eternal life of each and every one of those. He gave to his son and And in the fullness of time, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He accomplished all the Father's work to the point of the cross, and he secured the eternal life for every single one of his people. Guaranteed it. And as a result, he was glorified and returned to pre-incarnate glory as the victorious Messiah. And the ultimate result was the Father was glorified as his plans were accomplished, and we get to participate. Not only is that we receive eternal life as something to come, but as we experience eternal life now, as we know God, behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is what Christ prays in his prayer. And he accomplished it. He's a glorious Saviour, my friends. So what does that mean for for me and you? This prayer is not about you really at all. It's about the glory of God. We're just the undeserving beneficiaries that get caught up in God's pursuit of his, of his glory. So behold the glory of God in Christ. See the magnificence of his eternal plan and the mercy that he's shown to you that he determined to give you to his son. Worship him for Know the greatness of the salvation that Christ accomplished. It guaranteed and made certain the salvation of each and every one of those that God has chosen. And know the eternal life that's yours. Experience that. Press on to know the Lord. Meditate on Christ. Meditate on the gospel. Meditate on the cross. And as you do, you are experiencing eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. What a glorious God you are. We confess making you and the gospel all about ourselves when it's really all about your glory. And, but oh God, your mercy has overflowed to wrap us up in it and redeem us and accomplish everything needed from beginning to end to secure our eternal life, which we now enjoy. Oh, God, that you would remove the clouds and fog that we cause to be in our lives that hide your glory, that the pursuit of our life would be to know you. Behold your glory because that's what we will be doing for eternity. That is eternal life. So we love you, Father. Thank you. Thank you for my brothers and sisters this morning. Bless them. We ask for Christ to be magnified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.